And welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, um, we have a legend with us on the show. Um, somebody who I've admired for a period of time, um, but none other than Sam Pollard. How are you doing today? Pretty good, Bakari. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing good, man. I was at, We were talking as we got started about that beautiful pole train portrait you have behind us. And um, as I start each episode, it's kind of unique because I, I ask our guests to walk us through the arc of uh, their career. And I think it's fair to describe you as a master storyteller of Black stories through your editing, directing, producing, and screenwriting. But when did you know this was the work that would be the calling you'd have on your life? Did I know? Yeah. I don't know, because I'm not sure I ever knew. <laughs> <laughs> how, did you, how did you end up where you are today is the question. Well, here, here we go. I'll give it to you very concise. I was 22 years old, 21 years old, and I was a junior at Baruch College in New York City, marketing major, planning to be a businessman, wear three-piece suits, drive a Ferrari or a Porsche, work on Madison Avenue or, you know, Fifth Avenue. And uh, I was completely miserable taking all these marketing classes. I went to visit a counselor one afternoon and said I was looking for some kind of after-school internship. And she asked me, what do you like? What are your interests? I said, I love reading books like uh, Hemingway and Faulkner and Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes and Richard Wright. And I said, I love old Hollywood movies. I had grown up watching lots of old Hollywood movies from the 40s and the 50s. And so she said, you know, WNET, the public television station in New York City, in 1968, after Dr. King's assassination, started a film and television workshop to get people who look like me behind the camera in the editing room, producing, doing sound, a one-year program, two nights a week, where they have professionals come in and teach you the craft, the filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got into that program, Bakari. I stood it for one year. And then after that, I got a job as an apprentice editor on a low-budget feature film that has become a cult classic titled Ganja and Hess that was directed by the late Bill Gunn, who was an actor, playwright, and director. And uh, the editor on that film, a gentleman named Victor Konevsky, took me under his wing and I had dreams. I didn't think about being a master storyteller. I wanted to be a great feature film editor, you know? And, uh, but he, he, he had me take a detour into documentaries mm. and, my, and my whole world changed when I became engaged and fell in love with the making of documentaries. You know, documentaries are such an essential portion or part of our lives. What is it about documentaries that speak to you differently than say, you know, a feature length or, or whatever it may be? Well, the thing that, that speaks to me about documentaries is that if you do them well, you're telling real stories about real people in real situations. That's number, those are the three things I love. The fourth thing that engaged is excited me about documentaries is that as an African-American, you know, it's given me an opportunity to tell these stories about our people, our place in history. And for people to understand that American history is not just about George Washington or Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves, you know, or Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you know, there were black people who were very, very in part, a part of American history. So if you look at my body of work, which you have, you can see that it's, 
August Wilson, mm -hmm. or Slavery by Another Name, or The Rise and Fall of Jim Crow, or Eyes on the Prize, or this film about the Negro Leagues. It's about telling our stories and making people realize that our stories are part of the American story. You know, that that that's a he's such a natural, that's a natural progression to my next question. Before we talk about the league, you've been a part of some incredible projects. You know, we you mentioned my favorite, actually my favorite two projects are Eyes on the Prize to Maynard, um, uh, to your work around MLK and a broad range of films. Is there a story that you've really been wanting to tell that you haven't yet that you feel comfortable talking about here? There's always a story there. I got another film coming out on October 6th. That's been a film that I've been working on for many years, finally got it many years, finally got it finished. It'll be on the PBS series, American Masters. It's about the legendary Max Roach, who played with Charlie Parker and Bud Powell and Thelonious Monk and Dizzy Gillespie and Clifford Brown and Abby Lincoln. And I met Max in 1984 when I was working on a documentary with St. Clair Bourne about Langston News. And I got, went on to spend a lot of time with him in the late 80s and documented him and finally was able to get a film together. And we got a, a great cast. We got Jimmy Heath and Randy Weston and Dee Dee Bridgewater and Sonny Rollins and Albert Tootie Heath, you know, and Questlove. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we got a bunch of people. Greg Tate, you know, to tell the story of this phenomenal musician. So there's always, listen, If I probably have five other films I want to do. There's a film I want to do about Coltrane and Monk at the Five Spot in 1957. There's a documentary I want to do about a gentleman named George Washington Williams and another one named William Shepard, two Black men who went to the Congo in the 1800s when King Leopold went in there and, 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 and crossed, you know, crossed havoc in, that, in, the, in the Congo. You know, there's a documentary that I want to do about, uh, someone came to me about doing a documentary about James Moody the other day. Someone mentioned to me doing a documentary today about Eric Dolphy. There's a documentary I'm trying to develop about Impulse Records. So listen, man, it's always a doc I want to do. <laughs> I love I love it. That should be the theme. It's always a story, right? There's always, There's always a, story. a story. That's right. Let's talk about the league. What is it about? Why did you decide to do this project? Just the Cliff Notes version of what it's about and why you decided. Sure. The league, the league looks at Negro League baseball players in the 20th century from basically when they were put together as a, as a, as a, as a league in 1920 by a gentleman named Rube Foster, who brought together, created the Negro National League, and how that league evolved and survived and evolved and survived up until 1960, and how they created some great teams like the Kansas City Monarchs, the Pittsburgh Crawfords, you know, the Homestead Grays, the Newark Eagles, and had phenomenal players from Satchel Page to Josh Gibson to Buck Leonard to Buck O'Neill to Coop Papa Bell, you know, to Oscar Charleston to Monty Irvin to Larry Doby, and you know, to other and some players who became major league stars, specifically uh -huh. Mr. Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, and Ernie Banks. You know, so it's a story about the league and how things changed in 1947 for the league when Mr. Jackie Robinson was brought to the Brooklyn Dodgers. And the story that I always was told when I was a young man, that Bob, that Jackie Robinson integrating Major League Baseball was a big plus for our country, you know, in terms of integration. But I never knew the downside of what happened when Jackie integrated Major, League, major Leagues. And, and Black Patriots started to not go to Black Negro League games anymore, but went to 
white baseball stadiums to see the Jackie Robinsons and the Larry Dobies and the Willie Mazes that led to the decimation of the Negro Leagues, which completely was gone by 1960. And the way the story was told or written, I think many of us didn't realize or recognize, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Jackie wasn't even the best player in the Negro Leagues. No, he wasn't. I mean, there were, there were some people who said that, I mean, Josh Gibson was a great player. Josh Monty, Gibson was arguably the best. Yeah, you know, Monty Irvin was a great player. But when Brand Tricky selected Jackie, he was selecting him for more than just his baseball prowess. Right. You know, he was selecting him for his temperament, you know, his background, his education, you know. And so, you know, you know how the thing that's always interesting for me about these docs that I do is I'm always trying to see how complex these stories are, you know, be it MLK, FBI, be it August Wilson, be it this film. The, the stories of our experience is not one way, you know, it's not completely black and white, it's shades of gray. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I don't think I know the answer to this one, but were the Negro Leagues the first major sports league with black players? And for a frame of reference, when did the Negro Leagues formally end? 1960. They formally ended in 1960. There were no longer any Negro League players, teams after 1960. You know, the people, we, we all used to think that Jackie Robinson was the first black person to integrate the major leagues, you know, but you know, there was a gentleman in the 1880s, you know, you know, a, a Walker who was the first African-American to really play in, with white players. There were a smattering of white, black players playing in white teams from the 1880s up until Cap Anson, mm -hmm. who was a white player in the Hall of Fame, basically said he didn't want to play with black players on the teams, on the field. And that's when other team owners said, well, we're not going to have any black players on the teams, you know. Mm. I mean, this is, I mean, it, during this, the reason why the league is so important during this time, more so than anything, is because you, you educate us on a history and figures in a history when people actually want to kind of burn books. But I digress. Can you talk a little bit about the owners of the Negro League teams, who they, who were they, how they fund these teams during the early to mid-1900s, and what became of some of them after the Negro Leagues ended? Well, so, so I'm going to go back once. The, the, the first Black player to really play integrated baseball was Moses Fleetwood Walker, you know, and then like 1884, before Jackie Robinson. But many of these Negro League owners, some of them were white, some of them were black. They were all entrepreneurs, businessmen, who basically, you know, economically saw it as a way to make money. You know, remember, we live in a capitalist system, you know, and so these guys still have a way to make money. And so when Ruth Foster brought together these Negro League owners in Kansas City in 1920, 
his strategy was, let's put together our own league, much like the major leagues, so we can circulate the money from team to team, from, from stadium to stadium, from city to city. You know, so he was the first major, major league, Negro League owner. Then in the 30s, there were two other very important men, Gus Greenlee, who owned the Pittsburgh Crawfords, and Cum Posey with the Homestead Grays. They were sort of the next iteration of, of Negro League owners who had a very strong impact in the 30s. And then in the 40s, you know, Effa Manley, who I had never heard about myself until I did this film, Black woman, or supposedly a Black woman, who was co-owner with her husband, Abe Manley, of the Newark Eagles. So all of these owners were very, very strong, very aggressive. And, and this, one of the things that we uncovered in telling the story was that, and this is something I didn't know either, that when Ricky, Branch Ricky, signed Jackie Robinson, signed Don Newcomb, signed Roy Campanella, he didn't compensate the Negro League owners. He basically felt like he didn't have to pay them anything to sign these players. Now, you know, that's, that's unheard of. Correct. If he went to a white team, and wanted to get a player, he would have to pay some money. And Effa Manley made a big brouhaha about it in the newspapers. And she was able to get Bill Veck, who was the owner of the Cleveland Indians, you know, to pay some money to, to sign Larry Doby, who became the first African-American to play in the American leagues. So these owners, you know, you got to think about it. It wasn't just about the sport. It was about the entrepreneurial spirit of these people like the Rube Foster like a Gus Greenlee, like a Composi, like an Effin Manley, like an Abe Manley. You know, you, you mentioned Dolby. Um, you know, people know um, names like Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and Jackie Robinson, and some folk even know Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson. But talk us through some of the other seminal players in the Negro Leagues that maybe aren't as familiar names, but whose impact was just as significant that you highlight in the league. Well, Clue Papa Bell, he's one of the fastest players on the field. You know, Josh Gibson, who was considered one of the greatest hitters of all time. Oscar Charleston, many people say he could play every position. You know, there was Max Manning. There was Buck Leonard, who was a phenomenal player also. There was so many great players, you know, who, you know, by the time integration happened with Jackie Robinson, most of these players were past their prime, you know. So that's why they haven't made it into the major leagues. But fortunately, some of them have been put into the Hall of Fame. You know, this is the thing that people, I mean, in the film, Larry Lester says this. When Hank Aaron broke Babe Ruth's record, the thing that people don't remember was that Babe Ruth's record basically came against white pitchers. Hank Aaron's record was broke. When he broke that record, he had played against everybody, yeah. white pitchers, Latin pitchers, Negro, Black, African-American pitchers, everybody, you know. So that was really an achievement, I mean, to be the greatest home run hitter. So this is a story of, of how our impact, and I said this to somebody, in the film I did recently, the other film I did about Bill Russell, legend. Yeah, legend. Nelson, Nelson George says, when Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell, Elgin Baylor came into the National Basketball Association, they brought with them the Black athletic you know, aesthetic. Think about it, you know, Bakari, when African-Americans go into white sports, football, baseball, basketball, the game changes. Mm -hmm. The impact of us, both from a sports perspective, from a cultural perspective, is phenomenal in America. You know, So when you think about 
when you think about these crazy politicians like DeSantis, you know, and 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 Trump, you know, trying to denigrate six, the 1619 project because that's not their, that's not American history. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> So look, I mean, it's a, again, another natural segue. Why is the story of the Negro League such an important one for both our understanding of the sport, but our broader understanding of race and impacts of integration on black institutions? Because that's what I picked up a lot. Well, that's exactly what you should have picked up. Because listen, this country, as we both know, was founded on enslaved people and on the decimation of Native people. This country, you know, and these stories of our people stories of Native people, are so part and parcel of the evolution of this country, which is constantly in racial, you know, in class turmoil. You, you have to tell these stories. You cannot tell these stories. You know, that's a responsibility that I took on. And I got it from St. Clair Bond that, that we have to tell our stories, you know. And when someone asked me, is this an American story? I say, absolutely right. This is American history. And if, if we don't tell these stories, no one will ever get to know what happened in America. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Small question, but large question. Short question, but large question. Did integration kill the Negro League? Sure it did. Listen, integration, and this is always the, the, the complex conundrum. Integration had its pluses and its upsides and its downsides. Now, if you go into America, man, if you travel through America, and we talk about America's integrated, America's on a on a, on a much larger scale is pretty much segregated still. You know, it's, you know, segregated not in the sense that you can't go into a store anymore as a black person with white people that you can't be in the movie theaters, but if you go into communities all across the country, Bakari. There's still communities where white people and black people live separate lives. Now there's a sprinkling and black people can move into white neighborhoods now and, and vice versa, which we see with gentrification. But the country still has a, in, you know, inside an internal mindset, there's segregation, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like if you grow up in a certain neighborhood 
and you realize that you look around you, there's no thing but white people. You say, well, where are the black people? Oh, they live uptown. Or they live over here. They live over there. You know, it's it's still a very segregated world. You know, oh, I mean, you know, you, it particularly come down south. What's the most, Sam? What's the most segregated place in America? Church on Sundays, man. Church on Sundays, man. Sure Church on Sundays still is. <laughs> Just a couple more questions. You you mentioned it earlier about what Branch Wickey was looking for in, um, in Jackie Robinson. But elaborate, because I mean, I think it all ties into integration, etc. And there's a, you know, there, I love Jackie and I love his family. I love his daughter. What's, there's a lot of mythology. Well, well he's looking, he was looking from Jackie to be, what did, he, what did Harrison Ford say to Chadwick's character, Jackie Robinson's character? Don't make waves. If they yell at you or scream at you, you know, you can't react hostily. I mean, you got to be, to use the term that we grew up with, you got to be a good Negro. You know, be a good Negro. Don't make waves. It's like yesterday on TCM. My wife and I were watching, looking at what they're going to show. They were showing, guess who's coming to dinner? Oh, yeah. Classic. And, and, and you realize, I never liked that film. But the whole whole, the whole stratus, status of that film is Sidney's character, you know, the good doctor, you know, marrying Catherine Houghton, the white woman. His whole attitude is, don't make waves, you know. I mean, and the classic, the classic scene in that film is when Royal, Roy Earl says to him, you know, what kind of, you know, what kind of black red man are you? Something like that. And and Sidney says, I don't want you to say, you always see yourself as a colored man. I see myself as a man. Well, the reality is, I used to believe that that line too, you know, just be a part of the American melting pot and forget that you're black. But that don't work, man. <laughs> Don't work in America. <laughs> oh man, I could talk to you all day. Where can people find the league and when will they be able to watch it? The league opened on Friday, this past Friday, in, in selected theaters around the country. And on the 14th, it'll go stream. You can stream it on Amazon and Hulu and every place else. Look at that. Yeah. Would you ever have thought that you'd be making movies that are now being streamed on all of this? Other? No, man. <laughs> I never thought at all. And tell people when your next projects come out. So you have one come out last Friday. When the next one's coming out? Uh, October 6th on American Masters. It's called Max Roach, The Drum Also Waltzes. And then go. later in the year, another documentary I co-directed with a gentleman named Lou Smith based on a book by Charles Blow called The Devil You Know. You know? My guy. Shout out Charles Blow. Shout yeah. out to Sam Pollard for telling the story that matters the most. I've always admired you and appreciated you. Thank you for coming on the Bukhari Sellers Podcast. Everybody go watch the league. Thank you, Bakari. Be good.